All right. Good morning, everybody. Again, we're so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at one of the most prof- uh, famous prophetic writings about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. All right. We're going to pause our uh, study of First and Second Samuel. Uh, if you're new today... Obviously, you didn't know that we were in First and Second Samuel. We've studied through First Samuel. We're plowing our way through Second Samuel. We're learning lessons from leaders, uh, and, and that's the backdrop of Isaiah's writing. So today, we're pausing our sermon series, and for the next four weeks, we're going to do an Advent sermon uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, kind of pointing us towards Jesus Christ incarnation, coming to earth in bodily form. 100% God, but 100% man. So some, some big terms are used for that sort of thing. But the understanding that God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth in the form of a human being. 100% human, right? And, and we have lots of scriptures that point to that, and, we, and we'll probably get to some of those throughout this month. But he was also 100% God. Uh, and, and so here what we see is Isaiah is writing um, what God is inspiring him to write. Uh, and in Isaiah here, the children of Israel, they've been suffering through the reigns of four very ungodly Kings, okay? Uh, where we're at right now in 2 Samuel, David's king. He's doing a lot of great stuff. He messes up a little bit, but he's coming back to the Lord. They're seeing kind of a real good season. Well, right now, Israel's gone through kind of a dry spell. Where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 9 is there were four kings in a row that weren't that great. They were ungodly. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. They were bad kings. They didn't love God. They knew what they were supposed to do, and they did not do it. They weren't following God. They were corrupt, and that corruption in their uh, in their circles led to this uh, rebellion from God. And and ultimately, because the leadership was bad, the children of Israel, the people, started to drift, and they were further away from God too. Um, and 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 so the kingdom, right? Israel, the kingdom without God at the helm was crumbling, and, and God's people needed hope. Okay? You can kind of see where we're going to be tying in here. There were, a lot of bad stuff was going on in the nation, and, and the people who wanted to follow God, the remnant of sorts, they were losing hope. This was not a, a great time for Israel. In, in, I, in Isaiah here, as we're getting to chapter 9, he's just finished acknowledging the brokenness in the world, especially in Israel. The brokenness amongst the people. Uh, the, the darkness that surrounded Israel. Not only in the enemies that were around them, but because of the sin of the people. There was corruption and all of that was weighing heavy. And, and Isaiah's been writing about that. And then we get to chapter 9 there. And he turns our attention in this chapter to hope. There's this hope of a dawning light. And ultimately, it's going to be through the birth of a child who would one day make all things right. Now, I kind of got ahead of myself there and kind of spoiled what we're going to be seeing here in this chapter. But he starts out because of this darkness and corruption and brokenness in the world. 
The Jewish people in the Old Testament needed these words to remind them that God had not forgotten about them. He had not forgotten them. Isaiah wrote these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. God inspired words to the people to say, we have not, I have not forgotten you. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, and ultimately Jesus Christ the Son who would be coming. They needed hope. Israel, the Israelites needed hope. And you know what? We today, this morning, you and I are living in a broken world. A world filled with darkness. Right? A lot of hurt. A lot of pain. A lot of chaos going on around us. And you and I this morning... Some of us more than others need a reminder of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what God's word is full of. But Isaiah chapter 9 is especially there today. We need a reminder of that hope. It was true then and it's still going to be true today. We all need hope. And thank God because at the heart of Christmas is hope. At the heart of Christmas is hope. So turn with me to chapter 9 of Isaiah. If you have your scripture, if you have your own copy of your Bible with you, obviously we're going to have the words up here on the screen also. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word on our Grab a Bible table back there, we have extra copies of God's Word that we would love to give to you. Let that be a gift from us to you today. You can put your name in that, start taking notes in it, take it with you, and have a copy of God's Word. That way you can be reading it throughout the week. Let's dive in, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, as we look into your word, we thank you for the hope that is there, that is woven throughout scriptures from Genesis 1 through the end of the book of the Revelation of John. And we thank you for that hope. And we thank you for Isaiah 
And even though he didn't fully understand what he was writing, the depth of it, he wrote about hope that was found only in you and that he was confident that it would happen because you said it would. And we see that and we ask that we in our spirits today are encouraged by that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So as we look at this passage today, the events predicted by God through Isaiah are future events. When Isaiah penned this, things were still cruddy around him, right? The oppression, the darkness, the brokenness, it was still there. And and Isaiah's writing this to his people to tell them this is what God is going to do for us. And in the, the, the senses of the word, what, what you see written there, that it's present tense and past tense, because Isaiah says, as you and I should, if God says it, he's going to follow through and do that. So we see that a lot of these things are in the past tense, even though they haven't happened yet. The message from God to Isaiah wasn't a maybe. Maybe I will do this for you. Or if you behave, or if you work hard enough, this might happen. No, God's words were firm and believable, right? If God says it, I believe it, right? The biblical definition of hope is different than the hope that you and I think of when we're just thinking about the word here maybe in the United States, right? It's different, Going into December, there are a lot of little ones who have written a letter to Santa Claus. And their hopes are spelled out there, right? They're asking for gifts. I hope I get this, or I hope to get that, or will you get this for my brother or sister, or for my mom, or for my dad? They write the letter. They send it off. And then they wait. And they wait. And they wait. And, and and there's this hope, this positive feeling that something might happen. But the Bible, it uses hope differently. If you look at the word that's used there and the definition from the original word there, it's more of a confident assurance. My hope is set on God. There is a confident assurance that he's going to come through for me. The promises that are written in God's word in scripture, that he is going to fulfill those, whether it happens here on this earth or in heaven, right? In eternity. My hope is set on something that is going to happen. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. He's pointing towards this hope that we can trust God. We can trust him at his word. He is going to come through. Why? Because that's God's character. If he says it, he's going to do it. He's not man who breaks his word. Right? There are times when I've said I will do something and either I forget to do it or I just don't do it. And I break my word and God is not like man. Right? And so he can be trusted. And and that confident assurance, that's the kind of hope that you and I need to have. 
Now, as we're going into the holiday season, everybody has traditions. I love talking to people about their traditions, what they like to do. Even though my baby is now 19, or excuse me, he just turned 20 this uh, a couple days ago on the 30th of November. My baby is 20. I don't even have a teenager anymore. My four kids are older, and yet I still love this season. And I love the idea of seeing Christmas through the eyes of, of children. Now I have a grandchild, and so that's starting all over, and it's incredible. Gwen and I we're FaceTiming with Josie uh, over the last couple of days and seeing the Christmas ornaments and, and, and those sorts of things in their house in Ohio through her eyes. And it was incredible. But uh, what I used to love to do is look at Christmas lights. Now, we didn't put a lot of lights up on the outside of our home. We had a lot in, inside, but we, I would go around my neighborhood when I was a kid and look at other people's lights, especially the people who lived on the golf course. They always seem to have the good lights, right? And then as that, as I grew older uh, and, and, and started dating Gwen, I remember going out and looking at Christmas lights with her and with other friends during our college years. And then once we got married, we continued that tradition ultimately with the kids. And we would, we would, there was, when you would look at the lights, there was that awe and wonder that would kind of come out. And I don't know exactly why, but it kind of ties into what I'm looking at today. So even this year, we went down and we walked around zoo lights in the rain, right? And, and Gwen and I were able to go on a double date uh, with my daughter and her husband. We went down to zoo lights a couple days ago, and we walked through looking at the lights in the rain. It was beautiful. And there are a lot of places that you can drive around and look at these lights. But you need to wait for darkness to see the lights, can you imagine, even on a cloudy day like today, going at noon to zoo lights and walking around, all the lights are on, you would see the light, but it wouldn't shine bright. But because of the darkness of night, the light shines more brightly. God's promise here to send light, light in a deep uh, darkness, into a land of deep darkness, to me, it just popped this week when I read that. That's why we don't go to zoo lights or drive around the neighborhood during the day to try to look at the lights. We go at night when it's dark, and it, it, it just pops. It's it bright, and, and you see them, and there's awe, and there's wonder, and there's beauty. And yet God's promises here, what he says is, those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. This is huge. This is huge in Isaiah's context. They were in a dark time, but they just didn't know how dark it was going to get. And ultimately that Jesus was going to be that light that was going to come. The original hearers had forsaken God, devolving all the way down. And when you read all the way through Isaiah and other books of the Old Testament into witchcraft, and other things like that, other idols that they were bringing into their home, they were walking away from God. And thus far had rejected Isaiah's prophecies, the ones that he had already given. And so he's writing here again to his people in chapter 9 that God still has a hope for you. For you as his people. You are loved by God in your rebellion, in your walking away, in your rejection. Isaiah says you are loved and there is hope for you people. The light will shine on them, right? The light will shine on them. And this makes sense because God is light and, and, and in him there is no darkness, the scripture tells us. 
So the promise of Jesus Christ, which came around in early Genesis, chapter 3, I believe, is being prophesied about again here, that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, will come and shine his light on a very dark world. But darkness is so powerful, right? It's almost crippling. I don't know if you had a child, if you've had children, if you had a child that was afraid of the dark. Right, And I'd venture to say even amongst us adults that are still in here, the older children and adults, there are some of us in here that are still afraid of the dark. We like the bathroom light on or the door cracked open or a night light. Darkness kind of holds a, a crippling power over some people. right? And here we're not just talking about physical darkness, but also about that oppression and that spiritual darkness. There's power in the dark places. Powerful enough to cripple some people's faith, some people's faith in God. And Isaiah wants to remind his people that the hope set on God is one that will illuminate the shadows and the darkness of this world. Not only through saving Israel, but also for those who would believe once Jesus Christ comes to this earth. The darkness in Isaiah's time had broken many souls completely. There were people who were devastated by the darkness and brokenness of the world. And that is to, uh, to whom Isaiah was writing. The, the then. But the, the now, the you and I, right? There's darkness in our life. And this chapter, this passage is applicable to you and I today. Do you have darkness in your life today? Is there darkness that is breaking you? Do you feel alone in that darkness? Well, today I want to encourage you that you can find the light, and that light is Jesus Christ. If there's darkness there, even though you may not get out of the situation immediately, it doesn't need to be darkness suffered through alone. Even when God's people here in this story were finished with God, God was not finished with them yet. And that's why he's having Isaiah write these things, right? And that seems to be a good word for you and I today as well. Seems like every time the world we live in becomes more dark, I think to myself, could it get any worse, right? It couldn't get any worse than the things that are going on right now. And, and yet somehow it does, And yet God doesn't change. My future hope, confident assurance, is in the Lord. He has promised us the light will once again shine in our future. And you and I, we can bank on that. Right? Have you had one of those friends that when they tell you they're going to do something, they always come through? Right? Those friends are few and far between. But if you've had one, you've seen a glimpse, a very small glimpse of what God is. Right? You can count on God. He's promised us that light will once again shine in our future, even if we're in a dark place today. If you're discouraged with the way that the world looks today, or how your life looks today, let Christmas time give you the hope that Jesus Christ alone can bring. Because at the heart of Christmas, there is hope. Now, as we move through the passage, I read the whole passage, so I'll highlight back to it, but I wanted to read it so you could get a feeling of that there. Isaiah breaks out into kind of a full praise mode here because he knows the truth and he believes the truth. And he knows that worship will bring hope. If you're in a dark place, seek the Lord, 
right? Whether it's through reading or praying or even singing songs. I hope that if you're in a dark place and when you come to church on Sunday, that the hope that comes through a corporate worship would be there also. Truth, statements about God and who he is bring hope and light to you and I. Notice how he directs his words to God himself in anticipation of what he will accomplish. God, I know you're going to do this. You've said it and I believe you. And you and I need to do the same. The multiplied of nation phrase anticipates God's people overwhelming the earth, right? And of course, that will come, uh, or that comes with a peace previously unknown, right, to, to, to the world, to these people. And, and, and as we look through this month, we're going to see how all these different characteristics, for lack of a better word, or the, these different words, these phrases, apply to us, as well as the original hearers, because of Jesus Christ coming. And Isaiah uses two examples of the kind of joy that God's light will usher in using, right? He says two things there at the end of this verse. The, the joy of the farmer, right? As joy at the harvest, right? The joy of the farmer when the harvest comes in. I don't know how many of you are from the Midwest or from a farming area. I was not. I was born and raised around here. Uh, so there were some apple orchards I knew of, that sort of thing. But minimal. Then I met my wife, who was from North Dakota. And there were wheat farms everywhere and other things that they grew. But when I would go out there to visit her family, I got to know some of the farmers. Some of the younger ones, our age and a little bit older, that were in the just the... The, the, the heaviness of, of crop season and the long hours and what it was, but there was this anticipation, right, of the crop and what might come in, right? The joy that comes in with that good harvest. And then I would talk to some of the olders, those who have passed their farms already on to their children, uh, the, the retired farmers, and they would talk about the bounty and the joy of, of harvest being done. The second one there is the joy of the soldier. And living here in DuPont, right, we have a lot of soldiers out here uh, at different points in their careers. We have some retired soldiers who have decided to make DuPont their home and have stayed since. And then there's a few of us who are not military people but have been called or drawn to this community for a specific reason. But it says here, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, there's this joy that Isaiah is writing about when the soldier, when that battle is over and you've won and you take the spoil from the enemy and you divide that up, right? So for you, it might look a little bit different. Your deployments may not be physically taking from the enemy what's left, bringing it home and, and you know, distributing it amongst the soldiers or whatever. So it's a little bit different, but there's that idea of the joy of coming home from a deployment, Right? And I think that's still the same idea of what Isaiah is talking about here. God's light will bring so much, including joy. As we move on, uh, we, we see what else will happen. The yoke, the staff, and the rod of oppression will be broken when this light comes. And that's where he goes in verse 4, as we read earlier. All this idea of the weight of being uh, under the rule of someone else, the enemy winning, and you being uh, used as a slave amongst those people. The oppression of the Israelites felt during Isaiah's time, 
was from the neighboring nations that God used to discipline his children. The oppression that you and I feel today, the darkness that sometimes we are under today, a lot of times comes from sin, whether our own or the sin of the world that's around us, right? It's heavy on our shoulder. And those are the words that Isaiah is using to kind of express or describe what's going on around them. For now, sin seems to rule the world that we're in. But we also know with great biblical hope that this is not going to be the case forever. Sin will likely or will feel like it may rule in our lives or be ruling in our lives right now. And sometimes we could even get discouraged and think that it would rule forever. But we have hope, hope and a promise from God. He likens God's light to breaking the bonds of oppression Right, And for you and I, if we're struggling with sin or if we're struggling with the sin of others around us, that can feel like the oppression. And yet God's promises to you and I today also. And we know that the bonds of oppression will be broken. And, and Isaiah likens it to the original readers would have understood this to the day of Midian. Uh, he's referring to the story. If you're taking notes, you could jot down Judges chapters 6 and 7-ish and go read those uh, either later today or next week if you wanted to. But it's a story about Gideon who was able to overthrow the oppression of Midian. And it began with Gideon uh, repenting of idol worship that was going on. Uh, that had resulted in God punishing Israel through Midian. So again, another dark time in Israel's history. But amazing uh, in this story of Gideon, what happens is is uh, the number of people. Gideon gathers his army and God pairs it down, right? God pared down Gideon's massive army that he was going to take against Midian. And he, 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 I think he narrows it down to 300 men is what Judges tells us. So from thousands and thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, to 300 men. This tiny force would thwart the enemy whose numbers in judges are compared to a locust swarm. Right? I mean, this massive army, and God uh, says, Gideon, okay, go against them. And Gideon gets this massive army ready to go out, and he starts paring them down. And all of a sudden, Gideon's left with 300 men. Does he trust God enough to go out with those 300 men, right? That's the story that Isaiah here is comparing it to. Now, likewise, who could imagine that this light that God is promising through Isaiah would come in such a humble beginning as our Lord Jesus Christ did? Now, we know who he's talking about because we know these prophecies were about Jesus Christ, right? Verse. Uh, so these verses are kind of cloaked to the original reader, even though we see the prophecies that were there. But again, Midian takes a great army, pairs it down to about 300 and goes out and does great things. Jesus Christ left his throne in heaven, the greatness of God and eternity, and allowed himself to be put into the form of a baby. Again, fully God, fully man, he came to this earth. Small things can do great things. Verse 5, once again, uh, uh, alludes to the peace that's going to come as a result of God's light. Again, Isaiah's hammering away 
at this. He wants us to understand the warrior's garments and boots are no longer going to be needed for war at that time. They will be used for fuel for a fire. And he continues on then. Isaiah finally revealing for the first time, even if he didn't fully understand it, that the light will be in the form of a person. And so he pens these verses that are read often in December as we build up in our Advent season towards right the end of the month when we celebrate Jesus coming. Uh, That Not even just a person, but this is going to be a child who's going to be born. A son is going to be given. And, And he says... This about the Messiah. I'm going to reread this verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Alluding to the coming Messiah by referencing his birth as a child, again emphasizes the surprising nature of how God is going to bring light into this dark world, into this season. Like Gideon's tiny force against the massive army, God's plan was a baby. How can a baby accomplish something so incredible, right? And again, we have the entire story, but as Isaiah would have been penning this, as people would have been reading this, what good is a baby going to do against all this darkness, against all this oppression, against all this brokenness? Not only that, but you and I know that the baby would be born to a relatively insignificant couple, an insignificant woman, into a manger, not even at a hospital or in a home, in a very small and tiny town. And yet God does great things when we don't see the greatness that could come from it. A, a fourfold name right now is, is anticipated for this coming light, right? And we all know these couple of verses, but the, the four names that are given, I'll go through quickly. Wonderful Counselor, right? And, and this, this term really, it means, if you look back into the Hebrew, a miracle, a marvel, a wonder, it indicates something extraordinary, incomprehensible, inexplainable, inexplicable. It's one of those kind of words for wonderful. If you look back to the original word in Hebrew, the second part of that counselor means to advise, to counsel, to give a purpose to, to devise a plan. This child will be like King Solomon, who will wisely counsel his people, but superior to the days of Solomon. Because Christ, in Christ, is, as we see in Colossians verse two, or chapter 2, verse 3, all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what we he- see here being prophesied about came to fruition in Jesus Christ, and then was written about by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, verse 3. The second thing we see there is mighty God. Make no mistake, the coming light in the form of the child will not just be like a God. He is God. 
And that's what he wanted to get across there. This is mighty God, the all-powerful creator of the universe. You can pop forward to John. In the beginning was the word. Jesus Christ was the word. But he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him. There was nothing made without his word. What a powerful statement about Jesus Christ. His essence, his being did not start at the incarnation. He was from eternity past. He is the mighty God. We see here everlasting father. Now this one might confuse you a little bit. It did me. We didn't really understand. I mean, this is Jesus Christ, the son coming to this earth. Uh, and then over years, over the years studying it and kind of looking at it, there were a couple of things that jumped out to me that kind of, in my mind, helped me make sense of this. How can God the Son, Jesus Christ, be called the Father? Or God the Father is the Father, right? I mean, that makes sense to us. But it's important for us to understand that Isaiah wasn't really thinking about the Trinity. Okay, we see the Trinity spelled out throughout all of scriptures in a unique way that he did not have. Okay, he was thinking of how Jesus or this child would relate to us and about the character of Jesus, right? Everlasting father. If you want to know what God the father is like, you can look at Jesus. Okay, for those of you that are taking notes, write down Hebrews 1 verse 3. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The author of Hebrews is saying, you want to see God the Father? You look at Jesus Christ, God the Son. John 14 teaches us that Jesus alone makes the Father known. John 14. In fact, no one can come to the Father except through the Son. So today, if you need comfort, in comfort if you need protection in your life, if you need hope in this dark time, Jesus can bring the characteristics of the Father into plain sight for you. You know the Father if you know Jesus Christ. Everlasting Father makes a little more sense to me. I can see that there. And the final one there, he says, Prince of Peace. And first of all, we notice that the word here, Prince, it's, it's the first time really in any of these names that there is a, a human essence in that. Uh, it, it's interesting because every time in Scripture, biblically, that the word prince has been used up to this point, it's talked about a human prince. The first three all pointed to his deity, and them together, we get to get a picture of who Jesus Christ really is. Fully God, fully man. The hypostatic union. The fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man needs to be understood by you and I. Jesus was not merely a good man that points us towards God. Jesus is God incarnate. He came to this earth for you and I. And again, we could, we do. We preach about this every week. There's so much to talk about. But here, we're going to take that and we're going to understand that. 
right? And, and this is really cool. Way back here in Isaiah, Isaiah is petting by faith what he's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, and we see the idea of Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man. What kind of prince will Jesus be? Well, he's going to be the prince of peace. The, the Hebrew word shalom is the word used for peace. This is not the absence of conflict in a general sense, but it's the absence of conflict with God himself. That is a beautiful way to understand peace. A lot of times we think about our lives Am I living at peace with my, my wife or am I living at peace with my husband or, or my in-laws, right? It's the holiday season or my kids, right? But this is talking about a specific kind of peace, one that's brought through your relationship being righted with God the Father by what Jesus Christ does. Shalom has been defi- defined as a, a spiritual harmony, brought about in an individual's restoration with God. That's the peace that's being talked about here today. The coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, will create a way to have peace with God. It's the only way that you can. He died on the cross as an innocent man, never had sinned, Jesus paid the price for your debt and my debt that we could not pay. He was the perfect sacrifice. And this is all about the grace of God. By believing in Jesus, we can have a relationship built on grace for all eternity with God himself. Amen? This is good stuff. It doesn't get any better than that. The last slide here, just a couple of things I want to point out. We see David being referenced here on the throne of David. And again, for us who have been here over the last few months as we've been studying First and Second Samuel, we've been talking about David, right? And that God's protection and God's hand on David. And it's been beautiful here, right? And here we, we, we see this in these last couple of verses in this section. He's talking about being on the throne of David. God promised David that through his lineage would come the ultimate king. Remember the Davidic covenant? You will have a king on the throne forever. Do we believe God? If we do, we know that this prophecy, the one that was given to David, the one that's here, is about Jesus Christ and his eternal reign. We know that he's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, whose name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we still look forward to that with anticipatory hope. To the day with justice and righteousness, it says here. That's the way that Jesus will rule forevermore. This is incredible. This is what these people needed, and yet it's still what you and I need today. Through the prophet Isaiah, God has promised some incredible things, amazing things. As we hear these verses today, we should be encouraged no matter what's going on in our life. If we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we need to understand this in a deeper way, one that influences and affects every aspect of our lives. The Virgin Mary said to the angel who told her that she would be with child, but how can this be? Awe and wonder. When God gets involved, it should blow our minds. 
right? And so if this Christmas season, your mind isn't being blown by the incarnation over and over and over again, you're not listening. What God did for you and I is incredible. But if you find yourself in the same place as Mary this morning, do not be discouraged. Come back next week. And don't wait till next week. Seek the Lord this week. God has made these promises to you. The hope that we can have, no matter what's going on in our lives right now, is just as real as the promises he made to Isaiah and ultimately to, to Mary and to so many others. We have all this information in this book that we call the Bible, full of promises and hope. So are you lacking hope this morning? If so, look at the final phrase. This, the sediment that Isaiah writes, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Every time this week, from the first time I read that, that blew my mind. Because I'm telling you, I struggle sometimes, right? Like hoping that stuff happens. Because I'm still hoping that it happens the way that I think it should happen. Or something that I'm struggling with. I want it to be taken care of. But do I have the faith to trust God? And that it's his timing. Do I believe all the promises in his word? Do I live a life that reflects that? And here Isaiah says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's confidence. There's hope. Right? There's an assurance that he knows that this is going to happen. And that's a beautiful thing. A number of years ago, researchers performed an experiment to see the effect hope has on those undergoing hardship. Two sets of laboratory rats were placed in separate tubs of water. The researchers left one set in the water and found that within an hour that they had drowned. They were drowned. The other rats were periodically lifted out of the water and then returned to it. When that happened, the second set of rats was able to swim for over 24 hours. Why? Not because they were given rest, but because they suddenly had hope. There was hope. Those animals somehow hoped that if they could stay afloat just a little bit longer, someone would reach down and rescue them. If hope holds such power for a rodent, how much more so should that affect you and I as humans who can understand that no matter how hard you're swimming right now, how difficult it is to tread water, how many times you've gone under that your hope found in God that he will reach down and rescue you in his time is truth. That should affect our lives. I'm going to end this with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it has no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. 